This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And this episode, we're going to start in California and end up in Washington. So yes. you had a choice. And I chose the latter of the two for the paranormal story and the drink this week. Excellent. What did you bring? Okay, so it's my favorite season. Fall. Fall. So I had to choose a fall beverage. So I chose cider. Nice. Yes, so I chose a cider from Seattle Cider Company. Even nicer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a dry, hard cider made with real Washington apples. Not, not fake, fake ones. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> and yes, guys, I'm still trying to find that picture of me in my apple costume. We had a couple people ask why they haven't seen it. Or maybe I'm hiding it. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, it says it's not your standard cider. So let's crack this can open. We each got a one pint can yeah, here to drink. Our huge cans. <laughs> Mom doesn't like to drink out of cans. So we're going to pour it into a glass. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, Mom. It's not sweet. <laughs> it is dry. It's it like, kind of tastes like a beer. Mm, I think it tastes like a dry green apple. <laughs> yeah. A Granny Smith apple. I don't taste any sour, though. No. That's <laughs> a Granny it's Smith a is sour. dry. <laughs> <laughs> granny Smith is sour. Granny so, Smith. Apple. So how do we tell the listener to taste like a Granny Smith, but it's not sour? <laughs> it tastes like it just bit into a red apple. A Granny Smith with salt on it. It doesn't taste salty, but that's what salt, <laughs> but that's, that's what right. Does. <laughs> I feel like I just bit into a red apple. Like it's tart, but not sour. And it's dry. There's really no sweetness to it whatsoever. None at all. It's very good. But it kind of has that fizziness of a beer. But not the hoppy stuff. But not hoppy like you, like you love. <laughs> very good and very interesting. So much no, fun to very, try new stuff. No, it's really fun to try new things. Because normally when I have a cider, it's super sweet. Yeah. And I love ciders, though. Like, I just really like ciders. I have never had a dry cider. And I know when you told me we we're doing Washington, I was like, oh, easy. I'll go grab a bottle of wine. There's a lot of Washington wines out there. Or when we do California, it's always easy to grab a wine. But mm -hmm. with fall being officially on the 22nd, this was different. Are you going to say anything? Or I'm just going to keep talking this entire episode. <laughs> I'm still trying to like, it's so apple-y. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. It's it's literally like biting into an apple. Right. There's 6.5% alcohol. It's different, but I like it. Well, thanks for bringing something new to the table. That's why I love that part of this is alcohol. Mm, well. <laughs> I love alcohol, but no, that sounded terrible. Now, we have tried so many different things. So many. And our listeners have sent in a lot awesome of... Awesome recipes. Oh I my cannot gosh. wait to try some of these. I know. I know. Um, I Of course, I love hot, spicy stuff. And I think so. people know that because we keep sent, we keep getting like, oh my gosh, Bettina, you need to try this. There's like a jalapeno infused something we got and like... Oh my yeah. gosh. Fun stuff. Yes. I mean, we could sit all day <laughs> and make different drinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True We're becoming now. quite the bar over here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mom. Well, why are we really here? Let's 
tell some stories. Let's tell some stories. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a pretty well-known quote story. I wasn't too familiar with it, even though it is a huge, it was a big one. I've heard of it, obviously, but I wasn't too familiar with it. Like the details. And thank you, Dr. Joe, who is a very dear friend of ours. He suggested this because he happens to live. Well, we'll get there. Okay. So we are going to start, like I said, in California, and we're going to talk about the Hillside Stranglers. Hillside Stranglers? Oh, did I say stranglers? Yes. Huh. On October 31st, 1977, the nude body of a teenage girl was found in a neighborhood situated in the hills that surrounded the city of Los Angeles. There were ligature marks on her wrists and ankles and around her neck. The body had been covered with a tarp by a homeowner. When detectives removed the tarp and took a closer look at the body, they found a tuft of fiber on the girl's eyelid, no bigger than the tip of your small finger. And before you ask, no, the fiber was not from the tarp. Oh, okay. Keep this fiber in mind. It's a piece of great evidence. It took 10 days to ID the victim. 15-year-old Judith Miller. Oh, so young. A runaway living on the streets of L.A. Even before Judy was identified, another body was found on November 5th, 10 miles from where Judy had been found. Elisa Caston, 21, was found dumped on the side of the road. Nude, ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and around her neck. By the end of the week... Three more bodies would be found. Jane King, 28, was found on November 9th. Dolores Zapata, 12, and Sonia Johnson, 14, were both found on November 13th. The two friends were last seen on a bus heading home from a shopping trip to the mall. Oh my goodness. King, Zapata, and Johnson all bore the same ligature marks as the previous victims. But again, no evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA was left at the discovery site or on the bodies. Detectives now know that they have a serial killer on their hands. They actually thought that there was a good possibility that there were two killers working together. Some of the places the bodies were found would have been hard for one man to have gotten the victims to by himself. Hmm. On November 19th, The body of 20-year-old Christina Weckler is found bearing ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck, but also showing puncture marks on her arm. Detectives initially thought that Christina had died from a heroin overdose, but mm, that didn't really track. Christina was a student attending the local university with top grades. Then during the autopsy, puncture marks were found in her neck oh gosh now they knew their killer or killers had changed up their mo a little bit nine days later november 28th lauren wagner 18 is found dead two houses down from her own home oh no a neighbor reported seeing two men grab her police now know that their suspicion is correct there are two men involved Interesting. By the way, did I mention that by this time, L.A. residents are totally terrified. Totally terrified. This is a lot of women. Yeah. Girls. All in a very short time frame. Yes. Lauren's body bears something beside the ligature marks. On the inside of her palms, there are burn marks. Not cigarette burns. The cause is yet unknown. There is also a sticky residue on and around her fingers, along with some very small fibers stuck in the residue. There is now a task force that is working the case. Ninety-three police are fielding calls and following up tips. Wow. 11,000 tips, to be exact. I'm, I'm sure. Remember, this is 1977. There are no computers to help. Right. It's all notepads and pencils. Police did have well, some... Well, everybody's on high alert, too. So they're going to be looking at everything suspicious and calling in every little Everything's thing Everything's being called in, yeah. Yeah. Police did have some insight. 
All the victims were under 30. Could this make them more vulnerable and give the killers more of an opportunity? Don't know. They also thought that at least one of the killers was a policeman or wore the uniform of a police officer or someone in authority. Hmm. And that's how they got their victims to... Especially if they're like 12 and 14. Any age, you know. That's true. True. On December 13th, the ninth victim was found. 17-year-old Kimberly Martin found in an empty apartment. Kimberly was a sex worker, and searching her phone records, detectives found that she had been called from a payphone. Do you know what that is? I know what that is. (laughs) You asked me that with BTK, Mom. I know what this is. (laughs) At the public library. Police did lift a fingerprint left on the phone in the phone booth. Keep in mind that although this was... Hold on, it's a public phone booth. I know. Don't ask me. I was wondering the same thing. (laughs) One fingerprint in a public phone booth? There's something wrong with this picture. (laughs) I actually was wondering the same thing. Did they, like... How do they narrow it down to that one, one fingerprint? I don't in know. A public. Well, you know what? They probably lifted a hundred fingerprints. Okay. Yes. So let's let's say that because that makes a heck of a lot more sense. <laughs> Keep in mind that although all the fingerprints might have been a great clue, <laughs> there is no national database to compare the print to. No, not at that time. Autopsy showed that along with the ligature marks, Kimberly had also sustained a head wound that would have rendered her unconscious, but the head wound had not killed her strangulation. Mm. Now it's the new year and no new cases. That is until February 17th, 1978. A helicopter flying over the Angeles National Forest spotted a car crashed in some underbrush. Searching the car, police find the body of Cindy Hutspeth, 20, in the trunk. Oh, no. She had the same ligature marks. The killers were still active, but maybe not in L.A. anymore. Eleven months later, in January 1979, L.A. detectives got a call from Bellingham, Washington. The Bellingham detective held a California driver's license in his hand and wanted a background check on the owner, Kenneth Bianchi, a suspect they had in custody for the murder of two Western Washington University students. It just happened that the call was transferred to a member of the Hillside Strangler Task Force, Detective Sergeant Frank Salarno. Once he heard the California address of suspect Kenneth Bianchi, He flew to Bellingham. So back to finding the two students in Bellingham. On January 12th, two women had been found in the back seat of a car in a secluded area. Karen Mandick, 22, and Diane Wilder had been strangled to death. While investigating their deaths, police found that Karen had told a co-worker that she and Wilder had been offered $100 each by Ken Bianchi from Whatcom Security to guard a residence on Bayside Road where, while the alarm system was being repaired. What an odd job request. Right? I mean, totally like out of the blue kind of. I'm sorry. So they're just asked to watch a house while... Yeah, come on into the house and just be my security because the security, the guy is out of country. The owner is out of mm-hmm. country. And their security system, we need to update it. So let's just ask two random women to do that. I believe it was Karen who actually worked with Ken um, at one time at a supermarket in Bellingham. So that's how, I mean, she knew him. Sure. Yeah. I guess the women lived together. They were friends. Police found a note at the women's house to Karen in Diane's handwriting. Karen. Phone, and then the number, Ken B. Call him. Searching Karen's car, police find a piece of paper saying, 334 Bayside, 7 p.m., Ken. They also talked to a witness on Bayside that had seen a man in the area driving a Whatcom security pickup truck. The man seen matched Bianchi's description. 
Evidence was collected from the crime scene on Bayside, the bodies, the car, and from Bianchi's clothing. Fibers found on the women's clothing and Bianchi's match samples taken from the carpets at the Bayside residence. Hmm. Search of the basement bedrooms turned up hairs that matched Wilder's, and a pubic hair found on a basement stair, as well as some found on Wilder's body, matched Bianchi. Hmm. On January 14th, detectives from L.A. arrived in Bellingham, and by closely looking at the women's body, decided that they had many similarities with the L.A. murders. Bianchi's house was searched, where they found stolen property from places he had been assigned to guard. He was a patrol captain hired by Whatcom Security Company. Police also found stolen jewelry. At least two of the pieces matched the description of the jewelry worn by Hillside Strangler victims. Oh. Now things were falling into place. It turns out that Bianchi had lived next door to Christina Weckler and had lived across the street from Cindy Hutspeth, and he and his girlfriend had lived in an apartment complex where the empty apartment was that Kimberly Martin had been lured to. Wow. It turns out that Bianchi's name had been called into the task force. The mother of a girl he had dated had called his name in, saying that she had always felt that he was off somehow, (laughs) and she didn't like him. No real reason to investigate the guy. (laughs) And remember, they had 11,000 calls. Sure, just a hunch. They also had his name on file as someone who had applied to LAPD reservists and had gone on ride-alongs, always asking the officer he was with about the Hillside Strangler and wanting to go see the crime scenes. So now the detectives were convinced that they had one of the stranglers, but who was the other? The answer came from Bianchi's live-in girlfriend, Kelly Boyd, who told police that Bianchi's closest friend was his cousin, Angelo Biono. Bianchi is charged with 12 murders, two in Washington, 10 in California. He admits to it then? He claims insanity. This is oh my absolutely crazy. He claims insanity, saying he has multiple personalities Mm. okay so i watched here we go again (laughs) i watched a video of one of his psych exams and i almost i almost felt embarrassed for him (laughs) oh he pretends like he goes under hypnosis so he like hangs his head and then he raises it and when he wakes up he's steve walker (laughs) and he played this like totally up but He's a bad actor. (laughs) (laughs) He answers as Steve when he's asked if he's Ken. And he goes, do I look like Bianchi? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And then he proceeds on as he points to the pictures of the murdered women. Please tell me they don't fall for all of this. I killed her. Angelo killed her. And this broad, I've never seen her before. And this broad, I killed. And this one, Angelo and so on. Sick. The doctor did not diagnose Thank Bianchi goodness. with personality disorder, and eventually Bianchi pleaded guilty. Guilty. Well, while being investigated by the detectives, the first thing he says is, hey, I'm in a position I've always wanted to be in. Oh. I'm a detective, and I want to help you with this case. <laughs> <laughs> Then he proceeded to answer questions with information only the killer would know. So, they have Bianchi. What about Biono? He's put under surveillance. Sorry, these names are just... Sorry. (laughs) I didn't pick them. (laughs) He's put under surveillance and his past is looked into. Classmates as well as teachers are questioned. Police find that Biono was a sexual predator from very early on. He attended school but could barely read or write. So he was intellectually rather dumb, but street smarts is what he had. Yeah. He dropped out of school at age 16, was arrested for stealing cars. By the time he was 35, he had had many girlfriends and wives and had fathered eight children in and out of wedlock. His ex wife stated that he had on many occasions. Which one? 
I guess, the latest one. <laughs> he had on many occasions tied her ankles and wrists. Oh, no. He was a sexual sadist. In 1975, Biono started his own business. He bought a house with an attached garage, and from there, he did car upholstery work. And I guess... From all the stolen cars? He was... No. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, he didn't have stolen cars at this time. He was actually a really good upholsterist. Upholsterist? Upholstery Upholster? guy. <laughs> Upholster? I think it's upholster. <laughs> he often had Rolls Royces. No. In his garage and limos. He worked on one of the Supremes cars and even Frank Sinatra's car. Oh. So he was pretty well. He was pretty well known for his work. So what about Bianchi's past? He was born and raised in New York. His mother was a 17-year-old sex worker who gave him up at birth. He was adopted by Biono's aunt Frances and his uncle Nick Bianchi. He was angry and hostile as a child. In high school, he just didn't fit in. If you see pictures, he's a rather nice-looking guy. I mean, mm. especially when he was younger, like in high school. Side note, and this is kind of a tangent, but maybe we'll go into this as, a, as another true crime. There were three murders in Rochester. The alphabet murders. Have you heard of those? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I actually have. Three young girls were killed, 1971 through 1973. Bianchi was a teen living in the area at the time of the murders. He was, he served milkshakes at the local pharmacy. He was a soda jerk. Soda jerk? Mm hmm I knew you would ask that. <laughs> so. A soda jerk? That's what they're called. Okay. And it's kind of a pun for soda clerk. But it's a jerk because they had to pull down the handles okay. to serve the soda. Okay. So that's where the name soda jerk comes from. Never heard it before, but now I know. Really? <laughs> no, I've never heard soda jerk before. It's a wonderful life when he was younger and he worked at the pharmacy. No, I know the job, but I, did they call he him was a soda jerk he in there? He was a soda jerk. But did they call him that? I don't know. I'll have to watch but the movie now again. <laughs> We'll watch it in a, in a couple months. couple months. After high school, Bianchi tried to become a policeman. When he was turned down, he became a security guard. He began stealing things he was supposed to be protecting <laughs> and changed jobs often. His mother called Biono in L.A. asking if Bianchi could live with him for a while. January 1976, Bianchi moved into Biono's house. Uh, they didn't really super get along when they were living together uh, maybe as a testosterone thing I don't know well they both weren't a real nice guys so maybe yeah. that had something to do with it too yeah I think they sound pretty hard-headed both of them so Bianchi found a job as a security guard surprise surprised <laughs> and moved out in July he met Kelly Boyd from Bellingham Washington on New Year's Eve and five months later she was pregnant the couple moved into an apartment in Hollywood. That was the apartment that I had mentioned earlier, but we'll get to that. It was during this time on October 17th that the cousins were cruising and picked up a sex worker, 19-year-old Yolanda Washington. Biona was driving, and Bianchi pretended to be an undercover cop. What? He forced Yolanda in the back seat and proceeded oh to strangle gosh. her to death. This was their first kill, their first run, and they got away with it. And even more, they both liked it. They developed a met methodology with their next victim, Judy Miller, who they raped and strangled at Biono's house. Jeez. Biono gets off on the rape. Bianchi gets off on the killing, which mm. they do at the same time. Oh, my gosh. Remember the tuft of fiber detectives found on Judy's eyelid? Yes. They were able to connect that to the upholstery fabric found in Biono's garage, which the cousins had used to blindfold her. Oh, my gosh. Isn't science crazy? It's just, that was fascinating to me. That is so crazy cool. Just, wow. Now, interestingly enough... While they were questioning uh, Bianchi, he 
he refused to discuss the murder of the two young girls. Yeah, there. That's the ones that stuck out to me. Was there? Was they don't. Twelve-year-old and a fourteen-year-old. I mean, those are just babies. First like, of all, they're together. They were together at and a, they're at the mall. Very or young little uh, yes. girls. He wouldn't discuss them at all. Weird. Oh, because the killings were not spaced. Detectives surmised that they were more about entertainment mm-hmm. than actually the killings. Yeah, I'd agree. This was shown more so by what the two did to Christina. Remember the needle marks? Yes. Those were left from when the cousins injected her with cleaning fluids. When that didn't kill her, they tried gas. That poor girl. Remember she lived by Bianchi at a time? And she had actually met him. And she kept... Yeah, he like not knew her, but he saw her regularly. Yeah, they had spoken and... They, she took meticulous notes. She liked Hmm. to keep notes. And they found a notebook that she had these notes in. And she said that she had met Bianchi and found him to be a real phony. Oh, I'm sure he loved that. I thought that was interesting. He didn't know about it. The police found. Oh, the police found that. Mm -hmm. I thought you, I thought you. No, the police, the police had found that notebook tying her to Bianchi because, you know, she had met him. Okay, remember the burns and the sticky residue left on Laura Wagner's hands? I made a mental note to ask, what was the sticky residue? Well, the burns were electrical burns. Oh, gosh. And the sticky residue was from the tape that held down the electric wires. Are you kidding me? No. The fibers found in the residue matched fibers from the inside of a chair in Biono's house. Now to the Kimberly Martin crime scene, which was in the empty apartment. Mm-hmm. If you'll recall, there were fingerprints left on the phone. <laughs> oh my gosh. And yep, one of them matched perfectly to Bianchi. One of the hundreds, I'm sure. We're going to say hundreds instead of this <laughs> one that was in there. So how did Bianchi end up in Bellingham, Washington? How? You ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, how? It turns out that after 10 murders, Biono says he's had enough. Bianchi was starting to get out of control. By this time, Kelly, Bianchi's girlfriend, had given birth to their son. And she has no clue any of this? No clue. She and the baby moved back to Bellingham to be near her family. Bianchi soon follows her. Bianchi's urge to kill is still with him. But before he had always killed with Biono, the brains of the pair. Remember, Mm. he's the one with the street smart. This is evident in the fact that Bianchi was apprehended right after the murders of the two young women because of evidence and sloppy. Uh Biono, on the other hand, may not ever have killed if he was not with Bianchi. He was a because sadist. He's the one that, right. He was a sadist and he was a horrible guy, but not a killer. Bianchi pleaded guilty to the Bellingham Still murders. Still a piece of crap. That's why I say not a good guy, but Bianchi pleaded guilty to the Bellingham murders and to five L.A. killings. The guilty plea kept him from the death penalty. You can catch footage of him at his trial. He's crying. Oh, my God. And saying how sorry he is for the pain he caused to the victims and their families. A few minutes later, he's in the hallway with his lawyer laughing and joking. He's a piece of crap. He is obviously a psychopath. And as we have talked about before, psychopaths. He's the one who faked that he had some different personality exactly like i mean and not very well i have to say not very well (laughs) but who does that i mean that is just oh he's sick well and as we've talked about before psychopaths know how to mimic emotions so you know he just kind of felt around and oh yeah this is what i need to do now everyone's sad so i need to cry and be sad i like really hate him Like we've Oh just we've, wait. It continues. I mean, this is only what, episode thirty six. Thirty six, yeah. Like I hate a lot of the guys we've been talking about, <laughs> but I like really, really hate him. Biano has no reaction when he's questioned. I mean, just like 
stared in the space the whole time. His face <laughs> is like totally non-emotional mm. the whole time. He just answers that he's seen pictures of the victims in the papers. The police process mm. his house. That's all he says? Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, yeah. I, he was um, a ladies man <laughs> until they really got to know him. But, you know, he was too cool. He was a very cool kind of guy. Huh. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I've seen them. They're in the papers, you know. I mean, just above, hmm. you know, everybody. I don't know. So the police process his house and get this. There are no fingerprints. Let me repeat that. There are no fingerprints at all. Not what? one. The house has been so thoroughly cleaned that there is not one fingerprint. Mm. Well, when they Remember? compare it to the one at the phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> Remember who else did that? McDonald. McDonald did that. That's right. There was no fingerprints. fingerprints. Not on the light switch. Nothing. There was that, no fingerprints. That actually reminds me. Side tangent. But have you heard of the podcast Morally Indefensible? No. Okay. So it's a dive into McDonald. Oh. And it's, I think there's like eight episodes. Oh my gosh. But it's totally diving into it with the author that wrote the right. book for McDonald mm-hmm. and their fight that they had because mm-hmm. he started writing the book and then as he was writing it, he was like, this guy's Holy guilty. Holy crap, this guy is guilty. Yep. <laughs> so it dives into the case if you guys haven't heard it. I mean, obviously you have this podcast, but once you're done listening to ours, uh, that just totally reminded me. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on. Yeah, that was tangent, number but... three of ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this one, that podcast, like super dives into it, and I've been, I've been pretty hooked. I'll have to listen to that because that's an interesting case. V- incredibly interesting. And that, and you did a great job of telling it because as I'm listening to it, I was like, oh, I remember when Mom told me this <laughs> because I didn't hear that. I did not hear the case beforehand. Oh, that's so right. You were not familiar. I with was it. not that's familiar right. with it at all. And so as they're talking about it on the podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. Mom told me this, and she told us this. <laughs> oh, so, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. Anyway, back to this. Okay. Enough of that douchebag. Let's talk about <laughs> these douchebags. So, Biono is arrested on October 22nd, 1979, on 10 counts of first-degree murder. Mm. The trial lasts for two years. What? From November 1981 to November 1983. There's no COVID. What's going on with these cases? One of the longest murder trials in U.S. history. Yes, why? It was like they tried 10 separate murder trials. Oh, they did? Almost, they almost did. I mean, that's what took them that's that ridiculous long. Who was the star witness? Oh, Kenneth Bianchi. What? During the trial, Biono stared into space with absolutely no reaction. He was eventually charged with nine murders. Yolanda Washington being put on Bianchi, not Biono, because Biono was driving. <sighs> okay. So Biona was sentenced to life. The judge saying that if Bianchi didn't receive the death penalty, well, neither should Biono. He died in prison on September 21st, 2002 of a heart attack. Hmm. Sorry. Bianchi is serving two life sentences, 118 and a half years, in Walla Walla, Washington State Prison for the deaths of Karen and Diane. If he finishes those... <laughs> He heads directly to California, where he will serve five more life sentences. Yeah. Bianchi is alive and well. No. And very busy filing lawsuits and appeals. Are you freaking kidding me? He claims now that he was framed. And Are that, you freaking kidding me? And that evidence was planted. He is a piece of... He is a piece of something. I'll tell you what. He is just something else. Oh, my gosh. I told you I hate this guy. <laughs> Let me introduce one more person. Oh, no. Veronica Compton, who seems to have an intense fascination with serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, she's who? like. Who is that? <laughs> she at one time tried to correspond with Ted Bundy sending him letters but never getting a response (laughs) she then started sending letters and a screenplay she had written about murder 
to Kenneth Bianchi. He responded, and soon Compton fell head over heels in love with him. Oh, boy. Bianchi used this to his advantage. He asked her to testify in his defense at his trial, which she did. Then he talked Compton into killing a woman in Bellingham, giving her instructions on how to copycat the hillside strangler, and then planting evidence. So he gave her some of his sperm in a plastic glove so that she could plant that in the woman. Uh, The plan was to make it look like the hillside strangler was still active. But none of that makes any sense. Like, first of all, DNA is a thing. Like, they're going to trace it back to you. You're already in the system. It's not a big thing at this point, though. Okay, that sucks. (laughs) So. That I sound like an idiot now. But... (laughs) So DNA wasn't... Okay, well then scrap that out of the picture, Mom. But that just... But he was framed? So how do we know this? Please tell me that she like tattled on him, right? Compton agreed to the plan. (laughs) She killed somebody? To Bellingham she goes. And she did attack and try to strangle a young woman. But the woman escaped and the police were notified and Compton was arrested. And two south <laughs> And she just threw him under the bus? I'm sorry. This in two thousand and three, Compton was released from prison after completing her sentence. But while in prison she fell out of love with Bianchi and in love with serial killer Douglas Clark. Okay, she's got a type, let me tell you. And I kind of looked into him, and he is very dark. Oh. I mean, a very, very wicked man. Not much of anything is known of Compton now. I mean, you can't, I don't even know where she is. She must have changed her name or something. I don't even know where she is right now. Meanwhile, Bianchi is still filing way appeal after appeal. (laughs) They framed me, they framed me, but I sent her to kill somebody, but they framed me, they framed me. What an idiot. Uh, so, Joe Wessels, thank you for yeah, thanks, introducing Joe. me to the Hillside Stranglers. But I did take pictures when I was visiting up there. and um, Oh, we should totally put these on our website. And they're pictures of the house that they lived in. So it's, the house that, that the cousins lived in? Well, Bianchi. And, and his girlfriend, right? Kelly. Yes, it's the house that uh, Bianchi and Kelly lived in. So it's kind of... Right before he was arrested? While, yeah, when he was arrested. When he tried to do murders by himself? When he killed the two young women. It's kind of overgrown right now, but that adds a little mystery to it, I guess. (laughs) Somebody lived there now? Yeah. So anyway, you can post that. That always interests me when people like... The people that move in there know that a serial killer lived there. But he didn't kill them there. I know, but he was still a serial killer that still used that toilet. He was a horrible serial killer that, yeah. Still took a shower in that shower. Maybe they remodeled it. (laughs) I know I'd want to. He walked down those front steps. Oh, I couldn't. I don't know. I couldn't. So just a side note here. There's a, um, oh, I would call it a beer bar. Okay. It's called... My kind of place. It's called the Waterfront Tavern in Bellingham. Okay. Um, and um, interesting little enough, and, and we're not saying at the same time, okay, but Bianchi used to visit the bar and have beers. <laughs> Ted Bundy used to go to the yep. bar. I knew Ted Bundy was in Bellingham, but ooh, same bar? And the DC sniper. What? Would also visit that bar. What's in the kegs there? <laughs> well, a lot of people visit the bar. <laughs> There's, But it was just weird that, you know, that's one place. Anyway, while I was visiting, I also took a picture of that. Ooh. <laughs> and <laughs> just for fun. And it happened to be, I don't know, now it's kind of a biker bar. So there's all these bikers out in front <laughs> And I'm hanging out the window taking taking pictures. And the guy goes, hey, baby. (laughs) 
come over here we can take a picture together oh and i'm just God. like dude i'm not taking a picture of you and it's like one in the afternoon it is <laughs> it's in the afternoon that we're doing this that's funny <laughs> oh i love it uh, so bellingham great that's place to visit by the way awesome <laughs> great place to visit well my cider is gone oh mine's just starting an apple a day keeps the doctor away and i think there's probably like six apples in this pint all righty i guess it's my turn it is your turn talking about taverns was that a segue <laughs> unintentional but here we go <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story about Kell's Pub. Now that is weird because we... (laughs) 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 Unintentional segue for sure. So Kell's Pub is in what is called the Butterworth Building down in Pike Place Market in Seattle, Washington. And back in the day, Butterworth Building did not make maple syrup. It was a mortuary. Oh, really? It's not the same company. <laughs> the family they that owned this building. mortuary stuff to, to maple syrup. <laughs> no. The, the mortuary was owned by Butterworth. Mm-hmm. And the maple syrup company is a Buttersworth. So two very <laughs> different names, but I thought that was a funny joke and clearly slapped me on the wrong side of the face because that was not right. <laughs> what? what the hell did you just say? <laughs> it made sense in my head before it came out. <laughs> The family operated the mortuary building from 1903 to 1923. The entire building was used to store the dead. Oh, it was a one stop shop, if you will. What makes it more sinister is that the owner, E.R. Butterworth, was pretty corrupt. Butterworth and Sons Mortuary was the city's first purpose-built mortuary building. They did everything in the building from retrieving corpses, doing the autopsies, cremation, sold coffins, and then hosted viewings and funerals as well. Oh. The building had the first elevator on the west coast of the United States. Oh, crazy. Using it to move bodies up and down. Sex store. Okay. Fifth floor. Well... (laughs) Actually, funny you say that. I'm actually going to walk you through the building. (laughs) So we're going to work from top to bottom. Okay. The very top floor had three flats for employees. What's the top floor? Five? I don't know. Do the math as we work down here. (laughs) That's 6.5 alcohol has uh, totally kicked in. Kicked in. Kicked in. (laughs) Kicked me on the wrong side of the face. So the top floor, mm-hmm. so the top floor had three flats for employees. Now we're going back in the elevator, going down. Oh, they could live there. Mm-hmm. Like they were never going to leave. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? Oh. Once you find out what's downstairs. Okay. So you go down and this floor has multiple showrooms. You have a showroom for coffins that had a view of Elliott Bay. You had a showroom for children's coffins. Oh. You had a showroom for women's burial clothes. Oh. Sorry, men. From what I read, there was no specific showroom for you. <laughs> Just women's clothes. I guess you were buried naked. This floor also had a private reception room as well as a consulting room. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. Going down. This was the main floor with the main entrance off First Avenue. This floor had private offices, the morgue, an embalming room, and the, quote, utensil room. What's that? Which was kind of like a storage room with canopies, pedestals, rugs, and decor. 
for like funerals and stuff. Storage. Yes, storage. But they called it the utensil room, which I thought was very odd. Now, also on this floor, but entered through a different door, was the funeral chapel with a balcony, which was bigger than you'd think. Like the main chapel held 150 people and the balcony would hold 50 people. And there was also a separate choir balcony. Holy smokes. There was also a room for clergy and family members. Uh, It had another entrance to get into the chapel as well. And on this floor, they also housed the, quote, best showroom, which was the nice caskets. Back in 1904, when Butterworth and Sons was there, the caskets were priced as high as like $890. Holy smokes. Which is crazy. Yeah. All right. Going down. Oh, the basement. This was the not there yet. Oh, there are five floors. (laughs) We are in the quote, stock room. The whole floor was filled with fireproof vaults that stored bodies. Oh. The entire floor was the stock room floor, and it just housed bodies. Once I get into the history, maybe you'll understand a little bit more why this floor was used specifically for just the entire floor, just bodies. All right. So now we're going down. This is the bottom floor. This is the basement. It opened up to the back Um, to post alley down here was a furnace area to keep the building warm stables and storage area for the funeral wagons okay so this place sounds pretty incredible for the time right like literally everything is in one building right let's talk about how corrupt he was the butterworth family operated the building from 1901 to 1928 and during that time was the spanish flu oh which i guess hit seattle terribly Mm-hmm. Death became the area. And Butterworth's job was to just prepare the bodies for funerals or cremation or whatever and not ask any questions about how he's receiving the bodies. So there were so many bodies that the city was actually granting a $50 bounty for bodies being brought in. Hmm? Think about that. So if you just find a body, Bring it in and get $50. Like on the street? Death was just becoming of everywhere. Everybody was so sick. So there's a $50 bounty that the person would receive for bringing in a body. Oh my gosh. So then Butterworth would put, like, just say, I want half of that when you bring him a body. But think about that. Then you have these sickos out there that could just be killing people to get $50, but they bring in a Butterworth and yeah, see how this can be a little corrupt. Now, like I said, the Spanish flu was terrible and can you believe it but it was so terrible the city made it mandatory to wear surgical masks anywhere you went in the city say what (laughs) oh god (laughs) so i actually watched an episode of ghost adventures and he's telling all the history and he mentions that and he's like can you believe that they made people wear surgical masks and this is in like season four and i'm watching this with alex my husband and i was like are you kidding me right now this is really happening happening. this is like this is happening so there there are photos actually of families posing together with their cats and their dogs and their cats and their dogs are in masks oh good lord does that mean that's next I mean, it was really... How do you keep a mask on a cat or a dog? There are pictures of like people with their kittens and like masks on their kittens and stuff. Another dark fate of this area was a quack, Dr. Linda Hazard. A woman? A, yes. Again, she's not really a doctor, <laughs> but someone who posed as one and came up with the treatment of any disease or ailment out there that you're suffering from. The cure was fasting. (laughs) I've tried it. It doesn't work. (laughs) She opened a countryside facility called Wilderness Heights, or as people called it, quote, Starvation Heights. She did things like they could only eat this canned tomato broth twice a day. She would put them in like these scalding hot baths. And she would give regular enemas. Oh, my gosh. Is she related to Dr. Baker? Yeah. (laughs) From the Crescent Hotel? (laughs) Yeah. Seriously, they belong together. 
she had quite a hold on people and would keep them there and they would end up signing over their rights to their estates to her. Yep, just what Baker did. And then, of course, they died. So, yeah, she was responsible for 15 deaths at her facility. Now, what does this have to do with the mortuary? Well, in 1911, authorities finally arrested Dr. Hazard for her craziness. And it actually started going around that she was in cahoots with Butterworth. Oh. Apparently, he would switch out the deceased's body with a healthier looking body so that the guests at funerals or whatever wouldn't know how like skeletal how starved they were. Yeah. But didn't they see their face? I don't know. That's just what I've read. So Did he attached the head onto the Oh God. Body? Now we're getting like <laughs> the Lori Mansion here. No. <laughs> but again, I'm sure he made some kind of a profit off of this. Even more death brought into this building was the miners in the area. They were brought there from the mining areas, maybe a mining accident, maybe being murdered, a lot of questionable deaths. And then all these bodies are just filling up that storage room. Oh, but why is he keeping them? Why isn't he burying them? Well, it's just it's just a couple guys. They got to work through them. Through them, well, I mean, are they eventually burying? Well, them? they're doing funerals, they're doing rituals, and that's another thing. Like in Ghost Adventures, the lady was talking about how there were so many different services in the building. So you would have everything from a Catholic service to a Jewish service to just a memorial to even voodoo rituals oh. being done in that where the choir area is. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so back to the storage room. You have all of these bodies, regardless of how they died. And this area today is the private banquet room for Kell's Restaurant and Pub. Nom. <laughs> the main portion of Kell's is in the building's basement. So yeah, the pub is haunted. <laughs> or maybe people are just drinking and believe they're seeing things, not <laughs> just oh, knowing the history of the building. chill. <laughs> but regardless... Think about it. The entrance that guests of the restaurant walk into to visit the bar or the restaurant is the exact same entrance that all the bodies were brought into Butterworth Building back in the day. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. Today, people report seeing a man's reflection in the bar's Guinness mirror. And many people report seeing a little girl just standing by the bar. They say that if there are children in the restaurant, she'll start to act up to get their attention to play with her. Oh. Witnesses have seen glasses just randomly slide across the bar and shatter on the floor. She is said to be in a red dress and always seems to be carrying a ratty teddy bear with her. Oh. A tall, very thin man with a long beard has been seen walking through the pub's kitchen on several occasions. Possibly he died from a mining accident or mm. the Spanish flu or because of his very thin appearance. He might have been. He's one the, of Hazard's victims. Mm -hmm. There is an apparition of a deformed child sitting on the staircase in Kell's Irish pub. Oh, the staircase. Yeah, that's what Lisa was talking yeah. about. Last okay, week. so as I was reading that, that kind of struck a chord with me. That's right. That was last week's episode. Yes. Lisa told you it happens on staircases. It's a small figure. Seen and captured in photos a lot. Really? Somebody who captured a photo of this is Zach Bagans himself from Ghost Adventures. Of course he did. So like I said, they were there for season four, episode 14. They're taking, uh, in this part, they were taking like several photos of the stairs because they had been told that the spirit is usually seen on the stairs. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, a small figure is captured in a photo it looks like it's sitting at the top of the stairs and kind of like resting its elbows on its knees. In one photo, the image is there and in the next, it's gone. That's crazy. Did you see it? Yes. It does really yes, look it like looks, a child? I don't think it necessarily looks like a child, but it does look like a person, like probably either a woman or a teenager maybe because it's like a smaller frame on the top of the stairs and it does look like somebody's kind of sitting on the stairs, leaning over with their elbows on their knees. The owner of the pub is an Irish Catholic. They've had the building blessed on several occasions. 
but apparitions and footsteps and such are still seen and heard. So like I mentioned, all of the different rituals and everything that happened there. You mean like the voodoo? Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot that's, and there's a lot that's walked through those doors. Okay, so one of my favorite stories was the construction crew was demoing an area in the building and they started, all the workers started feeling like they were being watched and they just felt like really sick feeling and like just not right. And so one guy started just taking pictures of the area because he, you know, is a believer. It's probably <laughs> something I would do. In the picture, he catches this figure and the figure has a white face, yeah. black eyes, and a stitched mouth. <gasps> oh my gosh. Kind of like a dead person. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's on the episode of Ghost Adventures is where you see the image. And I couldn't find the picture online. I'm still going to look and try to post it for you guys but it literally it's like between two beams and it literally is just this all of a sudden a white face it has black like painted eyes and then like a stitched mouth super creepy and it's kind of blurry because the guy was just taking quick pictures like around mm-hmm. it's pretty so, like creepy. my pictures <laughs> yeah actually hmm. <laughs> sounds like you so the owner says that hauntings get more intense in the building around the month of November. November. So you guys have some time to plan your trip and head on out there. Why November? This is the time that the Spanish flu got really bad and the mortuary was filled with the dead. And so they believe that the stress and the sadness of all of it still lingers in the building. Right. Oh. Motion cameras in the pub go off pretty regularly when the restaurant and the pub are closed and no one's in there. The owner now keeps holy water behind every <laughs> single bar at the pub. So that is what I have for you. For wow. I'm going to have to remember that place when we go down to Seattle. I know. I really want to go. This place sounded just just the history of the just building. The if you believe in, in, in the sinister of it at all. But just the fact that that's what it used to be. And now they've made it into a restaurant and pub is just pretty stinking cool. Wow. And by the way, it was five floors. <laughs> Ay ay ay! Mother knows best. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's Kel's Pub in Seattle, Washington. Interesting. You always tell me about this Seattle stuff, and like I've been there several times, but I yeah. Story, and this so. is our second time we've done Washington, and I've done the paranormal both times. And I'm always wanting to do the I, the Shanghai tunnels, and I know a lot of people know about them. So I'm trying to. I've been down there. I want, and maybe we'll do when I do the true crime and you can tell about them then. But I want to do places that people didn't necessarily know about. No, I appreciate that. All right. Good episode, dear. Yes, mom. We had our apple for the day. And for tomorrow and the next day. And the next day after that. Well, thanks again, Joe, for another recommendation. Guys, keep sending us your recommendations. Next week, we are going to be doing a recommendation from one of our listeners. We are. Yes. So we will right. be covering DC next week. I've got the paranormal. I've got the drink. If you guys want to see pictures from this episode or others, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. And we have a website. Yes, we do. We are slowly adding past episodes to the website, but the current episodes are up with all the pictures from this episode. So if you don't have a social media, you can still log on to. And like I said, we're still kind of working on it. But for now, our website is www.killerhangover.wordpress.com. And you can listen to episodes there as well as see photos there's a contact page on the website, or you can just email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. If you have drink recipes you want to send us, your favorite drinks, if you've been to these places you want to send us pictures, or you have your own personal stories, paranormal or true crime, send them to us. We've had a couple personal requests for true crime stories of close friends that they want us to cover. We are doing the research. We are in the works and doing the research for those cases. A lot of them are still newer. Definitely newer and ones that we have never heard of. Yeah. So we definitely want to get as many sources on hand that we can for these personal true crime requests. Send them to us. We are open to that. 
we will always work to advocate for the victims on this podcast. Definitely, which is something we started off doing and we have always kind of Mm -hmm. done. But it's kind of like we're taking a little turn in that we have had requests to bring friends bring to bring light to cases that smaller kind of been cases forgotten. more personal cases that people want to keep in the public eye right it's funny how life kind of puts a microphone in your hand puts a <laughs> microphone in your hand <laughs> well so yes send us your stories true crime stories that have gotten you interested we just want to put the word out and uh, again you can email us at killer hangover podcast at gmail.com another great episode mom yes it was cheers mama Love you, kid.